my grandfather did not come directly to Chicago. He came by ship when he, all alone when he was 13 years old. His father had passed away. He sold water in Russia and he made enough money to make passage when he was 13. Came over to the United States when he was 13, 14, and started working in the foundries in New Britain, Connecticut. Hello, Assyrian Podcast family. John here in Chicago, welcoming you to episode 137 with our guest, Warren Shabbos. We've had the distinct privilege as host of this podcast to speak with Assyrians from so many generations, living in so many different places, their paths all different, and their connection to the community on different levels. In October 2020, I had the pleasure of speaking to Warren Shabbos, it's possible that even if you live in or have visited the United States, you may not have heard his name, but you just may have devoured one of his creations. That creation is none other than the Chicago icon, the Pizza Puff. Warren details his immigrant grandfather, Elisha Shabbos, starting a tamale and hot dog cart in the 1920s Chicago, a Warren's own entry into the family business, the idea and execution of the Pizza Puff, and what the future holds for his company and the Pizza Puff line. I have to admit some bias on my part here, and throwing my hands up, I love the Pizza Puff, okay? Uh, I told Warren that in our conversation. So a couple of years ago, when I found out that the creator of this delicious snack was a Syrian, I knew I had to eventually track him down and talk about it. In this episode, you'll hear of an idyllic experience of the American dream by an Assyrian named Elisha Shabbos who came here from Iran via Russia, spoke four languages, built a food empire, probably without even realizing it, and how that man's grandson Warren, using the same powerful self-belief and strong worth ethic, expanded that empire into what it is today. Warren and I talked a lot about his contribution to food, his career trajectory, uh, what it was like in the old days of Chicago and what the future holds for his company, El Taco, uh, being the second generation of Assyrian to be born in the United States and subsequently wrapped up in carrying on the American dream and family business. Uh, I was impressed with Warren's memories of his Assyrian upbringing, uh, yet also reminded of the duty most of us feel to not just remember, uh, but write down, record, and pass on for future generations of Assyrians and diaspora. A quick, friendly reminder to subscribe to the Assyrian Podcast wherever podcasts can be found, and to please rate and review the podcast. That helps us out a ton. This episode is sponsored by the Oshana Partners, a husband and wife real estate team. Are you considering purchasing or selling a home in Arizona or California? John and Rita are available to help make your next real estate decision into a seamless transaction. Contact the Oshanas at 209-968-9519. Get to know them a bit more by checking out their website, theoshanapartners.com. The Assyrian Podcast is also brought to you by Tony Kalagarakos and the Injury Lawyers of Illinois and New York. If you know anyone that has been in a serious accident, please reach out to Tony Kalagarakos. Tony has been recognized as a top 40 lawyer and a rising star by Super Lawyers Publication and has obtained multiple multi-million dollar awards. Tony can be reached at InjuryRights.com or 847-982-9516. And now without further ado, 
Mr. Warren Shabbos. Things I wanted to ask you, Warren, really quick, because I know especially as a multi-generation American, I've heard your last name pronounced two different ways, Shabazz and Shabazz. What way do you say it? <laughs> uh, the, the way my grandfather uh, pronounced it was like the Z was like an S, Shabbos. Shabbos, interesting. Yes. And is that how you say it as well? Yeah, I say, I call or... If I'm talking to a potential buyer, I'll say Warren Shabbos is here. Warren Shabbos. That's so interesting because I know I've heard it the two ways that I mentioned, but I've never heard it say Shabbos before. But that does make sense. Well, well John, when I was in the military, <laughs> they destroyed my name. <laughs> <laughs> so, Warren, you're the current head of Il Taco, short for the Illinois Tamale Company, uh, which was effectively founded in 1927 by your grandfather, Elisha Shabbos. Was he the Correct. first member of the Shabbos family to immigrate to the U.S., or was he born here as well? No, he was the first one to immigrate here. Excellent. And do you know where he's originally from? He originally came from the mountains of Iran, and he uh, went over the mountains with his father into Russia, because at that time, Russia was still Orthodox, Russian Orthodox. Right. And our people followed uh, two phases. They were either Catholic or Orthodox. And do you know if the family had been in the mountains of Iran for quite some time before that? Oh, yes. Forever. Forever. I don't know the length of time. Uh, but his father before him, his father. So let's say they were there at least three to four hundred years. Wow. That that is incredible. Um, so growing up, it, it's kind of an interesting time for you. Nineteen fifties Chicago. What are some childhood memories that stick out about your grandparents or your immediate family? What was life like all around in the nineteen fifties? The nineteen fifties, everything was slow and easy. Uh, my grandfather, uh, like I like you said, uh, opened it up in nineteen twenty seven. His sons were working for him. And uh, they were making tamales at the time. And uh, they had hot dog carts, and other gentlemen had hot dog carts. My grandfather was a, a very good carpenter. He also knew how to TIG weld, and he would build the, the carts. And they, the reason why they called them buggies, he would get baby buggies that were just the wheels were left on them, and he'd huh. build these frames on them and build carts so they could sell their hot dogs and their tamales. That is fantastic. I never knew that. And the way they've evolved, uh, I would have never guessed that they came from baby buggies. That is interesting, though. So why tamales specifically at that time versus uh, any, well, tamales and hot dogs, I suppose. But why, why tamales exactly? Well, tamales at that time uh, was, a, was a cheap way to fill uh, a tummy filler okay right. uh it would cost them a cent cent and a half to make at that time uh beef tamales and then in the carts they'd sell them for five to six cents you get two for a dime wow and they were four ounces so if you had eight ounces worth of food in your belly that would usually be sufficient and if you bought a hot dog that would cost you another dime 
So, and a hot dog would be anywhere from six to eight ounces. So you have 14 to 15 ounces worth of food in your stomach. That's a, it's a pretty good deal even by today's standards. <laughs> yeah, I would say so. <laughs> you get filled up for 20 cents. Yeah, that's pretty good. I'll take a hot dog for a dime nowadays, I'll tell you that much. Uh, inflation's a, a heck of a thing. Uh, where did the Shabbos family live at the time? Uh, we all resided uh, at 646 North Sawyer Avenue in Chicago. And I went to Samuel B. Morris uh, Grammar School, which was four doors down. Everything was close to everything. Uh, even going to work, you took one bus, Chicago Avenue bus, down to Orleans in Chicago. You walked 50 feet, and you were at the company. There you go. And yep. were you taught how to speak Assyrian at all in the house, or did you know any other Assyrians? What was your relationship like with the community. I grew up in an all-Italian neighborhood. We were the only Assyrians in that area, in that vicinity. Wow. Uh, my my next-door neighbor was uh, uh, Armenian. And the other side, I believe they were German. So... Were both of your parents Assyrian, not just not just your dad? Yes, my both my parents, Francis and Eddie, were both Assyrian. So were they raised to be Assyrian as well, or was assimilation pretty uh, pretty quick to take place with them as well, too? Yeah, it was pretty quick. Uh, they spoke uh, the, the language. My grandmother and grandfather taught me the language. I still have friends that are Assyrian that came uh, here, uh, just like my grandfather did. Uh, but I would only see them at church. My grandfather used to take me to church. And, Do you remember uh, which one he used to take you to? Yeah, Carter Memorial. It was on Pensacola and uh, Clark. We take two buses there. <laughs> the Chicago Avenue bus to Clark, and we take Clark Street up. I'm very familiar with the Clark Street bus, so that's, that's, that's excellent. Yeah. Uh, do you yeah, recall I mean, any Assyrian cuisine that your family had made that you were a big fan of? Oh, yeah. The the dolmas were big. The dolmas were unbelievable. The kebabs were uh, very good. But they used to wrap them in grape leaves or they would or they would uh, slice into a tomato, stuff a tomato, cucumbers, uh, big yellow peppers. Uh, and then we called another one called dolma chalama, which was done with cabbage leaves. They cooked the cabbage down, and they would wrap it in uh, the cabbage also. It's unfortunate that dolma did not translate to a natural cart food. Otherwise, the family business could have taken a different spin in the 1920s. Yeah, it could have. <laughs> but the, the transfer, it, it, it would be very tedious to wrap them because they're all about one inch by three-quarter inch. And a lot of the times the leaves would break, so you had to be very careful. Uh, yeah, the foods were great. The kebabs, uh, my grandfather would always cook uh, lamb, uh, beef, chicken kebabs, you know. It was an interesting that, time. Uh, I've been told that you know, wrapping grape leaves is somewhat of an art form and that not everybody can do it. And it actually sort of has a, a relation to uh, pizza puffs, which we will get into a little bit later, because there's wrapping involved in that, too. And I don't know if people realize that. 
but, but we will yeah, dive yeah. into that in just a minute. Uh, you were sure. actually, uh, what, roughly nine years old when you started working in the family business? It was about, uh, what, 15 years after your father, Edward, got his start. What was that like? Did they have you sweeping floors, or were you more involved in the day-to-day process? I was uh, day-to-day uh, wrapping the tamales. We used parchment paper. We used to use corn shuck. Oh, wow. But then uh, they weren't coming in very clean. There would still be dirt on them a little bit. So my grandfather thought, you know what, we'll go to a parchment paper. And uh, we started wrapping a parchment paper. And we would tuck them in, twist it at the ends, and tuck it in with our thumbs. Or to make sure they were absolutely secure from the water, sometimes they would be uh, thrown in water, not just steam tables, okay? And we would tie them with little ties of string on each end, like bows. Hmm. Yeah. And then how did uh, how did your role evolve there? What was your next job after helping wrap the tamales? Well, my my father went into the restaurant business. Uh, my uncle was still delivering, and my grandfather started showing me how to actually cook the tamales, the 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 right proportions of uh, spices to go in there, the fats, the water. Uh, He'd had them marked off these big stainless steel tubs, and the we would use like almost an ore to mix it with. We didn't have mixers back then, you know, big hollow uh, mixers or anything of that nature. So we it was an actual ore that you would mix it, and there was a there was a a real way to mix it, so you wouldn't have any dry spots with corn in one spot and just too much. Uh, filling in another. So uh, that's how he did it. And then he taught me how to do the cooking. I think I was about, I stepped up to the plate about 14 years old, 13, 14, because I was pretty tall by then. He knew I could at least <laughs> stand on the, on the stool there and mix it from there. That's fascinating to me because I always get these images of, of you know, food being made uh, of it being very um, assembly line like and, and made to get out of there pretty quickly that I don't even my brain doesn't even wrap around the idea of this old school way of doing it with stirring it with an ore and everything. Is it night and day now compared to um, you oh, know, how, how food is made yeah. in 2020 versus back then? Yeah, the cooking uh, back then one vat that we make one vat of each. The inside, which was red, made with chili and other spices. The exterior was yellow, yellow cornmeal. And we had like an old sausage stuffer that was converted. It had two tubes coming down and there'd be weights uh, pressing down on this and be extruded out the mouth of this uh, sausage maker. One, One would coincide into the other. The chili would be uh, extruded on the interior with a smaller cone, and the outside was a larger cone, and it would be pressed. They were It was tapered perfectly so they would come together. I love that you have such a vivid memory of how the process works, and I, and I wanted to mention one other thing that I found on, for, for all of our listeners, the El Taco website has a very awesome sort of family timeline that you go through from the beginning of the company and it incorporates not only family events, but Chicago sporting events and anything else that you know happened around the same time. 
And it also adds that you were, uh, at the time when you first started at the company, you were only one of four employees. And there's a gentleman by the name of Pete the Armenian listed as one of the employees. I just, I have to scratch my curiosity itch here. What is the story behind Pete the Armenian? Uh, my grandfather spoke several languages. Uh, he spoke uh, Russian. He spoke Assyrian. He spoke Armenian. And he spoke English. Uh, Pete was a gentleman that came by one day. I think I was like eight, eight or nine years old. And he has the job from my grandfather. And my grandfather saw the business getting a little bit bigger. And uh, he lost the use of my uh, my grandmother. Uh, my grandmother uh, I had gone blind. Uh, and uh, he needed another person to cover it with me. So... Pete stepped up. Pete, when he came to work for us at that time, he was uh, 74, 75 years old. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And he stayed with me for the next uh, 15 years. That is incredible. Yeah. Is there still a connection with Pete's family at all? No, Pete came here all alone. Wow. Uh, for Armenia, uh, he was, he was all alone. He was totally all alone, you know, but my grandfather would invite him to the house. My grandfather was a very giving person, very giving. And, uh, he would invite Pete and a few other guys that lived in the same housing place. He did every Thanksgiving, every Thanksgiving, they'd come all dressed up with their ties on sit there and they'd have shots of whiskey with my grandfather and uh and they would go home and they were very thankful my grandfather didn't like to see anybody alone on thanksgiving he just didn't like it you know but he was a very giving man very giving you mentioned Pete coming here by himself. Uh, your grandfather obviously immigrated to Chicago as well. Was it something specifically about Chicago versus New York or Cleveland or any of the other places that had at the time a high population and work? Yeah, actually, my grandfather did not come directly to Chicago. He came by ship when he, all alone when he was 13 years old. His father had passed away. He sold water in Russia, and he made enough money to make passage when he was 13, came over to the United States when he was 13, 14, and started working in the foundries in New Britain, Connecticut. A lot of people don't know it, but New Britain was, most of it was foundries and steel processing, and uh, he didn't get here until he was like uh, 18, 19. Uh, he had an injury on one of the bridges in New York that uh, it took him a while to recover. And then he found out he had a sister here. She tried locating him, and uh, he came to Chicago. And believe it or not, by 2021 years old, he opened up a bakery. And he used to make hot dog buns. 
I don't know if you know, but was it was it fairly simple to just open up a business like a bakery at that time? It seems like today you have to go through a lot of red tape and have a lot of capital saved up just to start up a business. Was it fairly simple at the time? Did, did he ever tell you? Yeah. That? Yeah. You didn't, there, there was no FDA, USDA right. or anything like that. You, you rented a space for maybe $2 a week or $3 a week. And, uh, rents at that time were five and up to $15 a month. You know what I mean? And, uh, yeah, he was able to, yeah, it was fairly easy to get into the business. And it seems like a lot of that work ethic, a lot of the entrepreneurial spirit, uh, that certainly passed down to you, uh, by 1964, uh, you take over management of the business and, uh, the decision was made to shorten the name from the Illinois Tamale company simply to El Taco. Uh, was this a trend in the sixties to have cleaner, shorter brand names, or were you ahead of the curve on this decision? I think we were ahead of the curve then. Uh, we just thought it was a catcher uh, name, Il Taco. It kind of blended itself at that time when we were just doing tamales, like we were uh, Hispanic or whatever. Sure. And uh, it, uh, it made it easier. We were going to go ITC corporation itc food but uh we didn't really care for that so we called it old taco about a year later uh, you get drafted into the military you end up serving roughly five years in the u.s navy uh, at that time was that frightening at all for you or for your family members particularly you know your mother or was that uh something that you took a lot of pride in i took a lot of pride in that i really did I was in from 65, actually, uh, 65 through 69. I had to stay one more year in the reserves. Well, you could call that still the military. Sure. And I had to, uh, what I learned in the Navy, I had to teach other guys up at Great Lakes and Pensacola, Florida. And then the, the 70s, I mean, we're talking right after your service. Uh, that was a huge time for you. Uh, you resume management of the company. Uh, you get married. You moved the location of the business, which um, I, I believe the website mentions where the business is now. Uh, where did it move from? It moved from 806 North Orleans. Uh, we we wanted to be closer to the house so we could just walk to work. <laughs> and we opened up about, I believe it was about 3300 on Chicago Avenue. So within 10 minutes walking, I'd be at work. That that's that's every. It was actually thirty three, thirty seven West Chicago Avenue. I just just clicked in my head. <laughs> that's that's wonderful. So you move the business within walking distance. That's everybody's ideal situation: being able to walk to their own company. Uh, you and your wife have your first child, uh, your daughter Alicia. Uh, this is right around the time you hatch your idea for the iconic original pizza puff. Uh, what led you to this creation? Was it a customer request or just a light bulb going off? I, it was a, a customer request. It's so funny you mentioned that. <laughs> Growing up in an all-Italian neighborhood, Calzones and Panzerotis, we used to have these feasts, Italian feasts in the neighborhood. Uh, they bring in rides right in the middle of the street. We'd close it off. 
you know, they'd have a roller coaster, the whip, and a few other things. And the food, they'd have uh, clams, oysters, uh, and calzones, and pizza. And any guy that would put up the permit money could open up, you know, on the nice. street. And uh, from that, you know, having that background, and all my dad's friends were Italian, my grandfather's friends were Italian, a lot were in the grocery store business. But uh, what really got it going was it was a customer, like you mentioned. I walked in there. <laughs> it's funny to me now that I think of it. Here's this guy playing around with pizza dough. And uh, he puts the sausage and the cheese and the sausage, and he throws it in the French fryer. And the thing dissipates. And now his grease <laughs> is filthy. And I'm looking at this guy and said, what was that? <laughs> he goes, well, I don't have the room to bring in a big oven like the pizza guy down the street. You know, most of the hot dog stands were 400 to 500 square feet. You stood outside. He slides a window open. You give your order. And uh, they didn't have room for uh, an oven. So I'm thinking about this guy that I know. He owns Azteca Corn Products. His father started it a long time ago. And on the south side there, in Little Village, they were starting up, you know, selling uh, white burrito bread, and they were making taco shells. And I knew he was starting to make burritos, and I said, if this guy can throw a burrito in a French fryer or in a skillet with a little grease in it and nothing happens to it, I got to go over and talk to this guy. So I go over and talk to him. We became friends. We're still friends today. And uh, can you sell me these shells? He goes, no problem. So I picked up about, you know, 10 dozen. I brought it back here. We're practicing with it. I throw it in a French fryer. All it was was a tub with grease in it. And uh, threw it in there. And it came out nice. So now we had to work on the interior to make it really taste really good with a lot of flavor, with a lot of seasonings. So if you know how Italian sausage is made, you know there's fennel in it, there's black pepper in it. and So we start putting little uh, pots together. Like we'd make up seven or eight that day and see which one tasted better. And finally we settled on this formula. We started doing it, and I, I, I uh, looked over at uh, one of the guys that I had hired, and I said, you know, some if I could just sell 50 cases of pizza puffs a week, we're going to be rich, you know? <laughs> so I started taking samples out to all the hot dog stand guys. I said, Warren, this is fabulous, fabulous. And that's how it began. And you mentioned making about seven or eight different versions, if I heard you correctly. Was that, did you say that was all in one day or was that over the course of uh, a year or more? No, no, no. I was making samples. Samples. Uh, Got in, it. Okay. In these little pots, you know, like a, a two quart pop uh, pot. And we'd mix it up and we'd, we'd eat a little bit of it. We'd say, nah, that one's too salty. This one's good. Then we settled on one. And that's the one we stayed with. We didn't make other flavors until later on. Of course. But uh, the pizza puff is still the same way it was from back then. 
And I'm not telling you this just because I'm interviewing you. I've loved Pizza Puffs from when I was, I believe I was six or seven the first time I ever had one. And I'm going to, as long as nothing changes with them, I'm going to love Pizza Puffs until the day I die. So I have a hard time describing. (laughs) No, you're the the wonderful man for inventing Pizza Puffs. Uh, I have a hard time describing to people why I love Pizza Puffs so much, because it's like it's got all these different flavors to it. It's got a different character. It's got a a perfect consistency to it. Uh, What, in your words, makes a Pizza Puff so delicious? I I think it's the bread. Uh, I, I think it's. It's 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 Chicago. It's iconic to Chicago. You know what I mean? The taste buds of Chicago are in that product. It, it, like you mentioned, you you lived in an all Italian neighborhood, so obviously you took uh, a lot of inspiration from their cuisine. Is there a little? And you you mentioned Azteca with the the shells and everything. So it's almost sort of a hybrid. Uh, Mexican Italian type of uh, of creation. Was there anything else that went into that too, or was it primarily uh, those two serving as the the backbone of a pizza puff? That was the backbone of the pizza puff. You know, now you brought that up. I remember we 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 built this up, and I had these big styrofoam containers, and I would go down to Azteca and put them in there, the flour tortillas, and finally Art said to me, "Why are you doing this?" You come down here at 3 o'clock in the morning to open up by 6. Isn't this a lot of work? And I said, yeah. He goes, you know what you're going to do? Buy your own tortilla press. That's <laughs> so funny. He says, why are you coming down here spending all this money with it when you can make it for maybe 10% or 12% what I'm charging you? So we started making our own tortillas here. What's a hidden gem in the El Taco lineup that more people should try? I don't think a lot of people understand that there's so much more than just pizza puffs in the lineup. Uh, there's about 16 flavors now. Uh, the ham and cheese has taken off. Uh, the pepperoni has taken off. The taco flavored one has taken off. Uh, the kids came up with a formula with uh what's the other one alicia uh the ones that you you did a uh, euro puff ruben puff a uh, euro puff a puff see those two are new to me i haven't even begun to try those yet i don't know if i have to go find a, a restaurant that serves those uh, or i have to get my hands on those because those are two of my favorite foods uh mixed into a pizza puff so it's it's natural i have to give those a shot as well Right. I mean, there's, uh, there's some of the people didn't want uh, meat in their products, too. So sure. we came up with a spinach pizza puff, and we came up with a four-cheese pizza puff. And then uh, ethnic-wise, we came up with a beef pizza puff also. And uh, that went over well, too. You mentioned a lot of the, the later flavors taking off. Um, where does the original rank as as far as sales goes and popularity, is that still right up there? Yes, it's still running about number one. Still running number one. Uh, I believe pepperoni's right behind it. Because once you leave Chicago, a lot of people don't understand Chicago. One time we used to have uh, cattle on the south side. There was actual cowboys on the south side. Hmm. And uh, 
we were the hog capital of the world at one time. And they bring hogs in there. So it was quite available beef and pork was very available. And without giving away any secrets, of course, I'm not looking for insider information here. Can you give us any info at all on future Il Taco releases, uh, maybe new pizza puff flavors or brand new foods altogether? Well, what came along was uh, our breakfast puffs started uh, coming on. The kids created uh, a bacon and cheese breakfast burrito. They came up with a ham and cheese breakfast, a sausage and cheese, a ham and cheese. And just sausage and cheese. And at this point, all of your children work in the family business. Uh, last year, according to the timeline on the website, the fifth generation of Shabbos has got a small dose of what it's all about, uh, with the little Alex doing a bit of training. Uh, in an ideal world, uh, do you hope that El Taco remains family-owned and operated forever? Or, or is there a part of you somewhere that hopes at some point uh, a descendant can cash in big and carve out their own path like your grandfather did almost a century ago. I'm hoping, uh, I know uh, my children will will carry it on. They're doing a fabulous job now, uh, Alicia, Andrew, and Adam. Uh, they, they know how to dig into this. They've worked every part of the company. Uh, they've delivered. Uh, so they know every aspect of the business. And uh, hopefully it goes on. I would, I would hate to see it ever be sold. The one thing about this, everybody has to understand, people have to eat. And you're never going to lose your business. I've seen the stock market get decimated. Uh, this COVID has uh, destroyed a lot of companies, a lot of restaurants out there. It's closed up hotels. But the one thing that has been consistent, as my grandpa always told me, don't ever let go of the golden goose. Never, ever let it go. You will make money your whole life. Just work hard and keep it going. So I'm hoping they do. I hope they do. I hope Alex and uh, even we have a new addition called Lenny Lou. That's her name. She's a darling. She's a year and three weeks old now. I'm hoping they all can enjoy this, what we've enjoyed. That would be lovely. Uh, you mentioned your relationship uh, with Assyrians. You still have a couple of friends uh, who are Assyrian. Um, what is your kids' relationship like with Assyrians? Do they have Assyrian friends or people that they keep in touch with? It's, it's amazing that you said that, too. Uh, we moved up to, uh, well, Matt, because I wanted the kids to get uh, a, a good education, and in school, there were a few. Some of their parents, some were doctors, some were dentists. Uh, one of them, you probably know him too. In fact, he called me yesterday. He wanted to get together for lunch. Uh, he called me. And, uh, yeah, they know them. We go, we visit some of their places that they've opened up restaurants. And... Uh, we keep that alive. We try to keep it alive, you know, that they, they don't forget their heritage and they know there's other Assyrians in this town and that it's good to keep it up. And lastly, but certainly not least, 
uh, are the Shabazz family a Cubs or a White Sox family, or do we have some split loyalties in that house? We're split. <laughs> <laughs> what are you, a, are you a Cubs quite, guy or a White Sox? Quite a conversation when the games go on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're split on that. And I, I noticed that this year you uh, there's a sponsorship with the Chicago Fire. Who I'm I'm a bit biased towards soccer. I'm a huge fan, uh, season ticket holder. Once upon a time before the work schedule got too hectic. Um, but how did how did that work out? Reaching out to them, or did they reach out to you? They did. They did. They reached out to us. And uh, as we both know, soccer has become very very popular. And when he asked me to step up, I said, you know what? I, it was time for my children to get involved with these type of things, you know, the advertising and, you know, and uh, how we could build a relationship with a, uh, uh, with a soccer team or any team, any, any pro sports. And uh, they did a fabulous job. My children got in there. They became friends. I, I met the owner of the team, uh, of the of the, their corporation, and their manager, and uh, we're in with them now. And I'll tell you what, if I ever see original Pizza Puff or El Taco uh, displayed across the front of a soccer jersey, that's going to be a day one purchase for me. Okay, that's terrific. <laughs> hint, hint there. And uh Warren, we always end things uh, by giving our guests an open mic. Uh, if you have anything to say to our global audience, some words of wisdom, uh, encouragement, funny joke or anecdote, uh, the mic is all yours, sir. Okay. All I can say is just work hard, have a clean life, just have a good work ethic, and you will survive you will survive. I know right now it's it's not a good time, but it'll all come roaring back. It will. That's Chicago. That's the United States. And I believe in the United States. It's a wonderful, wonderful country. It allows everybody an opportunity, everyone. So grab a hold of what your dream is and make it true, make it real. That's what I have to say. Warren, I'd like to thank you for three different things. I want to thank you for your service, not just in the military, uh, but your addition to the culinary world in the original Pizza Puff. Uh, I now consider that an Assyrian food, by the way. I tell all my friends, yeah, that the Pizza Puff is Assyrian. It might have uh, ingredients <laughs> that you're familiar with, but it's it's definitely a uh, an Assyrian-generated pastry. So you could, you, know, you could thank us for that one. You could thank Warren for that one. And also, oh. I want to thank you for your time today. Oh, my pleasure. John, I wish you the best. I wish you the best, my friend. To you as well, Warren. Thank you so much, sir.